Hey, I'm Rosa Gerding, and this is A Life In, Episode 1. Today, I am joined by John Henry Brown. Before I formally introduce you to Mr. Brown, let me extend a welcome to you, the audience, for joining me from the very beginning on this journey. I have no idea what this show will eventually turn into, but I know some things for sure. I will continue to find guests that have done fascinating things in life, such as my guest today has. I will work on improving the show where I can, and I will go with the flow. Hey, there aren't any rules here, after all. I hope you stick around with me, wherever it may take us. I've set out to make the show a series of conversations with innovative and intriguing minds, and my first guest certainly fits the bill. John Henry Brown is one of the nation's most well-known, respected, and, to some, infamous criminal defense attorneys. Based in Washington State, Brown and his firm have represented thousands of clients over 40-plus years, most notably Ted Bundy, former Staff Sergeant Robert Bills, and the barefoot bandit Colton Harris Moore. But he has also represented police officers, women abused by their spouses, and scores of low-income clients pro bono, accounting for about 30% of his cases, demonstrating Brown's commitment to justice and competent legal representation for all, no matter how unpopular the client may be. Brown's history of representing serial killers and other high-profile clients has garnished him a reputation, to say the least. But so, too, has his zealous style of defense and ability to grab media attention. As a prosecutor once remarked, Brown in the courtroom is, quote, like a pit bull on crack, unquote. His 2016 memoir, Devil's Defender, My Odyssey Through American Criminal Justice, From Ted Bundy to the Kandahar Massacre, is truly an extraordinary reflection by a lawyer who has, at times, lived life at an 11. The book details his upbringing on the West Coast, numerous run-ins with the law, and thought processes while defending those who many would deem indefensible. Throughout the interview, John and I touch on some of his most wild encounters, influences from the counterculture 60s and 70s, notorious clients, and life in the law. It's a fascinating conversation, and I really could not have asked for a better inaugural guest. John, welcome. Thank you, Russell. Here I am. There you are. Well, so first, I'd like to talk a little bit about your upbringing, uh, specifically about your the line of, uh, of work that your father did. So you, your father worked under the government for President Truman, but more specifically, can you talk about what he did? Uh, my father is one of the first members of the Manhattan Project, which was the code name for the project that um, developed the atomic bomb that was used in World War II. Uh, he was one of the first 20 members of that, uh, which took him from upstate New York, where he was in college, to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was a secret city and not even known to anybody, uh, which is where I was born in uh, 1946. And so, yeah, I understand that you moved around quite a bit, uh, maybe 10 times before you even reached high school. That's correct. Yeah. And so you guys ended up in the uh, West Coast in New Mexico. Um, and I know that's where a lot of the government testing uh, was done. Um, and I want to touch on this later on. But uh, on some kind of subconscious level, do you think the work that your dad did, the impact and the capabilities of atomic energy had any uh, development on your views of morality, mortality and the death penalty? Um, probably, uh, yes, we did end up in New Mexico and uh, later on in California. I love New Mexico. It was my favorite place. Um, I just finished a book called Area 51, which is a 500-page book, which I rarely read those kind of books, but it was very interesting about the area where the atomic bomb testing took place. I recommend it. It's very well written. Very well written. Um, we didn't talk about the atomic bomb in my family very much because my father, I think, was 
sensitive to it and um, felt that he had been betrayed by the government to a certain extent, which a lot of the other people involved in the Manhattan Project also felt. They were told they were, it was going to be a strategic weapon only and not used. Uh, and Oppenheimer and, and others have actually written about that. So it wasn't something we talked about. My father was anti-death penalty, so was my mother. So I was kind of raised that way. And speaking of the death penalty, uh, I know in your book, you, you observe how opposed you were to it, but for a period, uh, maybe not as much. But uh, suppose a more abstract question. Here, where I'm based in Texas, we put to death more people than any other state. And your job, in part, is to save people from getting such a sentence. But obviously, the death penalty can take decades and decades to come to fruition for an inmate. So if your client is sentenced to death, but they were to die before actually getting executed, do you personally view that as a success at the expense of the state? That's an interesting question. I've never been asked that question before. Um, no, probably. <laughs> I don't really care about the expense to the state. That, that That's more of an intellectual conversation rather than a philosophical one, I think. Okay. So your goal is to just uh, serve, have the client serve as little, uh, the shortest sentence possible. Well, my risk depends. You know, there are, there are people, hang on, there are people who are charged with crimes that are innocent. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the government's own statistics, which is a scary statistic, but the Department of Justice own statistics say that about 5% of the people in prison are probably innocent. Now, that's a really scary uh, concept. In Washington State, right here, that would be 900 people. So you can imagine what would be nationwide and probably much more so in Texas. Uh, Texas is the, the buckle of the, the uh, death belt, uh, Texas and Florida. So uh, yeah, Texas and Florida execute more people than every other state combined. I know governors uh, Perry and Bush, uh, but specifically Bush claimed that no innocent person was put to death in Texas. Do you think he said that believing it or uh, was that just politics? I think it was ignorance. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody knows that for sure. Uh, and I think just statistically, um, there must have been um, innocent people who have been executed. Uh, I believe that the Innocence Project uh, in New York with Barry Sheck has actually developed some actual cases where innocent people were executed. I'm not familiar with that, but one of the people you probably should interview is Barry Sheck, uh, and he, he'd help you with that. I know even Justice Scalia, is, uh, his argument for the death penalty is the acceptance that some innocent people uh, would die uh, with the death penalty being an option. Yeah, uh, I'm not familiar with his specific statements along those lines, but yeah, I think you're correct that he has said that. Well, going back to your uh, childhood, uh, you eventually moved to the Bay Area and got involved with the music scene with your own band, Crystal Palace Guard, where you uh, were involved with Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix uh, with shows. Uh, but you also, in your book, talk about your run-ins with the Beats, going to City Lights, and, and I believe sitting in on a reading by Ginsburg. Uh, so as much as the music shaped you uh, on, on an individual level, I'm curious, uh, how about the Beats? Were, were those writings influential on uh, younger John Brown? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was in Palo Alto, you know, but Palo Alto was not Silicon Valley at the time. Um, Palo Alto was one of the most progressive places in the United States, probably. Uh, Joan Baez lived there, her husband lived there, Mimi Farina lived there. Um, uh, Tom Wolf lived there for a while. Uh, Ken Kesey lived in the mountains outside Palo Alto. Uh, and then the City Lights Bookstore was in San Francisco, which was 35 miles away. And Allen Ginsberg used to basically hang out there. I think at one point he might have even owned a point of uh, part of it. I know just recently in the last 
couple of weeks, the man who um, owned City Lights passed away in his 90s. Uh, Lawrence Pilgrim, Fernand Getty also uh, hung up there. So I went to many readings of all those people at either a place in Palo Alto um, or at the City Lights bookstore in San Francisco. And yeah, you know, I was very influenced. I don't know that I called them the beats at the time, but um, it was definitely a, a uh, distinct group of people. Um, and their, their form of thinking and the freedom in their thinking was very attractive to me. Did you, um, I, I know you gave an interviewer this one anecdote where uh, you saw Tim Kesey's interaction with the Hells Angels uh, just on the road one day. Yeah. Uh, Ken Kesey turned on the Hells Angels. He was living in Skyline, which is a mountainous area, not a mountain, a hilly area outside Palo Alto. Beautiful, very beautiful area. Still is. And uh, the famous day that he turned on the Hells Angels, they came down the main street in Palo Alto, University Avenue, and they were all blasted out of their minds. I don't think there were more than 20 of them, but that was certainly enough. Uh, and I was working at the coffee house that day, actually, standing out in front of the coffee house when this all happened. Um, we later on found out because Ken Kesey used to come into the coffee house by work. We found out that what Ken Kesey had done. At that time, uh, was Hunter Thompson influential on you? Um, I didn't know much about Hunter Thompson until much later. Um, okay. So I did. I certainly followed his career and his craziness. Um, I did. A, I, I was very familiar with Aspen because of going to college in Colorado and my band used to play in Aspen. And I had some really interesting experiences at Aspen. And I know uh, he ran for sheriff in Aspen at one point and only lost by like 15 votes, uh, which is classic Aspen. Um, but I didn't really know much about him until later, no. Okay, well, to continue on influences, you cite MLK and John Kennedy as, as big influence on you and your family, especially with Kennedy. Um, but you also take pride in saying you've always been a, a bit of a rebel, if not an anarchist. So I'm curious, in your uh, in the 60s, late 60s, 70s, how important were thinkers like Chomsky or Michael Harrington or even international philosophers like Sartre on uh, your worldview? Well, a lot of those were very important. I was a philosophy and religion major in college. So I was forced to read a lot of those things, uh, Sartre particularly. Um, Chomsky has always been a uh, hero of mine. So I followed Chomsky ever since he became known. Um, and, you know, people have a tendency to read what they want to read. Um, and so I would read things and the philosophers that I read were very helpful to me in forming my own opinions. I would never say I was an anarchist. I would say I'm anti-authoritarian, that's for sure. Um, and I always have been. And if, if you're anti-authoritarian, being a defense lawyer is probably one of the best jobs you can have. Did you read The Greening of America at the time it was published by Charles Reich? Oh, yeah. That was quite a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know uh, uh, Justice Alito had him as a professor at Yale and was not too thrilled with him. But I'm curious if that book shaped, <laughs> uh, if that book was uh, um, of any yeah, that, importance to you. When was that book written? It must have been, I think, 1970. Yeah. Yes. And I, the book was important to me, and I do remember reading it. He's still alive, I think, isn't he? I think he passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was one of our Bibles, that's for sure. And apparently, he also, at uh, Yale, he also taught uh, both Bill and Hillary Clinton, as well as uh, a few other people. But Justice Alito had him and was not too thrilled. Uh, I can understand all of that. <laughs> 
but in the book, you also <clears throat> spend a lot of time talking about uh, how opposed you were to the Vietnam War while also being a, a huge proponent of the civil rights. So I'm curious, as someone who lived through that period, how did you view Johnson at the time? And how, like, how did you weigh his domestic strides with the failures on his foreign policy front? Well, I think in retrospect, Johnson, certainly uh, compared to some of our more recent politicians, not the present president, but anyway, uh, I think Johnson has come across in history as being a fairly uh, accomplished uh, politician. Um, he was a Southerner. He was from your state. Uh, he was a real character, um, to say the least. Uh, I think his civil rights uh, legislation was one of the biggest moves in our society ever. And I think it was sincere. Um, he inherited the war uh, and I think he bumbled through it because um, Westmoreland kept telling him he was going to win the war. Uh, so, you know, and he believed that. Um, so, you know, the war was a big nasty secret for a long time. Uh, but I remember being involved in demonstrations in Washington, D.C., which is very interesting considering the recent attack on the Capitol January 6th, because in the 1970, we had a moratorium demonstration and the same year we had a mobilization the moratorium had 500,000 people in Washington DC and there was no violence of any kind except for the cops beating us up so that's pretty interesting I, I'm surprised nobody's made that uh, connection with the uh, January 6 events but you know we were able to pull off a demonstration with 500,000 people and nobody was we didn't do anything to hurt anybody right um, I know he uh, there's recounts of him in his office hearing the infamous Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today, Chant? And that just driving him absolutely crazy. Um, true, true. Uh, so I also know that you had a specific moment when you really realized that being a lawyer is what you wanted to do. And from my understanding, that was actually when you were in jail. Uh, if that is that true? Yes. Well, it's funny because I looked at my high school annual recently and it said under my picture, a future lawyer, which I never realized I'd even put that there. Uh, when I was in college, I was studying philosophy and religion, and I was in a very successful rock and roll band, so I didn't really think I was going to go to law school until I got arrested wrongfully by the Denver Police Department, who didn't care for my political uh, behavior, and certainly didn't care for our band, which was the first kind of West Coast hippie band in Denver. Uh, so I was in a jail in Denver for three days, decided to stay there, even though I knew I could get out, <clears throat> and met a lot of poor, mostly black Hispanic people uh, who had no lawyers. It was before the Supreme Court determined that lawyers were uh, a right to everybody, no matter whether you had money or not. So yeah, that was a radicalizing experience on me. And that's what led me, I, I left the band and then applied to law school. I know in the, in the book, you also talk about how uh, somebody told you, you need to go to law school up in uh, DC and you just kind of called around this, a few schools and then American, uh, you called, and then they just get on a whim. They just like, yeah, sure, you can join us. Yeah, that was really serendipitous to say the least, because um, it was August and I'd already been ex accepted at uh, University of San Francisco Law School, Santa Clara Law School, Hastings Law School, all pretty good schools. But this fellow I met said I should try DC for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> and so I just called all the law schools in DC and basically got laughed at. But in the, when I called American University, the dean of admissions actually answered the phone. It was August, so it was probably nobody else there. And he asked where I'd been accepted, and I told him, and he said, well, hell, you know, if you can get accepted there, you get accepted here. Come on out. So that's what I did. During your time in American is when you interned at uh, Issues and Answers, correct? That, yes. 
you have a chapter in the book, I believe, called the Spiro, uh, the Agni Acid Test or, or something along those lines. Uh, so I'm curious if you could tell me and the listeners about that infamous day where you could have very well ended up in federal prison for many decades. Well, first of all, yes, I did. Uh, maybe your listeners don't know, but Issues and Answers was a talk show like Meet the Press. Uh, it was actually the no number one talk show. It was on ABC uh, in those days. Uh, and I serendipitously again, I mean, you got to keep in mind within one year of being in a rock and roll band and, and babysitting Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, I had White House press credentials <laughs> through ABC. They obviously didn't have any background checks back then. Uh, and I had a ponytail, which I used to put underneath my ABC blazer. I had a blazer that said ABC on it. And um, Spiro Agnew was on the show a number of times. And most of the Nixon administration was on the show, uh, except for Nixon. Uh, and we all hated it. Agnew and thought he was an idiot. And um, he just made a bunch of disparaging remarks about protesters. So I taken a tab of LSD and put it in my pocket and decided I was going to dose him at the cocktail incident. Uh, we, these people started drinking at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, that was the old days, kind of like Mad Men. And uh, so one of my jobs was to make drinks for these people. So I was tempted, but decided not to. Um, one, I would have gotten caught for sure. It was a live show, so Spiro would have been coming on with the acid just about when he was on the air. Um, but the producer of the show was a woman, the first woman producer in network news, and I didn't want to get her in trouble. But you came extraordinarily close to actually doing it in your hand. Yeah, within a minute or two, yeah. Um, well, back to uh, American, you're 23, right? You're just out of law school and you're involved with the Washington government. Uh, I believe you're working for the, the governor at the time. Yes. And uh, this is the time when Bundy first made his contact with you. But Bundy was also working. Uh, he had some connection with, with state government too, right? Well, actually, I didn't meet Bundy until a couple of years after that. Uh, and um, yes, he worked as a gopher for the Dan Evans campaign. Dan Evans, back, your listeners probably don't know that there used to be a thing called progressive Republicans or liberal Republicans. There actually was. Mark Hatfield from Oregon, Wayne Morse from Oregon, um, the fellow from Idaho, believe it or not, Idaho, Frank Church was his name. Um, Dan Evans was our governor who was a progressive Republican. Um, I worked for him. He was running for re-election and Ted was one, you know, a minion literally ran for coffee and donuts and stuff like that. But, you know, Ted wanted to ingratiate himself with powerful people. He always did. So that's probably how he came in contact with, with your name, right? And then he reached out to you asking if you could serve as his counsel? No, two of the other lawyer, two lawyers older than myself and Ted who worked for the governor in real jobs, um, Ted befriended them during the campaign. And when he got in trouble, these two lawyers, one of whom became a very good judge uh, and still is a judge, uh, senior, a senior judge, um, recommended me to Ted. And so the listeners, uh, he, Bundy went, obviously went through a lot of different lawyers and didn't keep them around for too, uh, too long. But you served as his counsel on and off for over two and a half years, right? Closer to three? Well, actually closer to 10. Um, I mean, my active involvement was probably closer to three or four, but uh, he continued to correspond with me. That my his letters to me are in the book, um, most of them, not all of them. So I, I continued to correspond with him. He wanted me to do some appeals from his death sentence in Florida, which, see, I got him a plea bargain, which people 
aren't really aware of. Nobody would think you could get a plea bargain for Ted Bundy, but I did with three different states and he begrudgingly accepted it. And then we walked into court one day in Tallahassee and he said he wasn't gonna do it. And myself and another lawyer that were helping him basically told him we weren't gonna help him anymore. So I didn't really help him anymore. I did testify at his Miami trial as a witness, both for the prosecution and the defense. Well, that goes back to the on and off uh, relationship with, with Bundy. There was a couple of times where you could have sworn you were done serving, having anything to do with him, but you came back. So I'm curious, uh, was that a moral dorm on your end? Did you feel like anyone else could have handled it him the way you did? Uh, I don't know. It was a moral dilemma for me because I had lost a good friend, a woman friend who had been murdered. Uh, so I, it was always challenging to represent Ted because I had that experience in my life. Um, but I was pretty much and still am in favor of life, not in favor of death, even for people like Ted Bundy. Uh, so it was, it was just, it's just kind of the, as I told the New York times one time, it's just my fucking path because this job is very hard. Um, and, uh, so it's just my path. This is what I'm supposed to do. So your girlfriend at the time, Deborah Miller, right, was, was murdered uh, around the, uh, Northern California where it was possible that, uh, Bundy would have uh, been, uh, at the time, but you claim to never really have thought of it until you started writing this book. But I'm curious, those around you, your family, your dad was the one who told you about Beeler's death. Um, from your understanding, did anyone in your inner circle ever believe uh, that that could have been the case? No, um, uh, no, not at all. And I kind of have to believe Ted was not involved or I would never forgive myself. Um, but um, the circumstances of Deborah's death were different in many ways from Ted's uh, pattern. Uh, similar in some ways, but different in many. Um, it's just a creepy notion, you know, I have to, I, I never even started thinking about it until seven or eight years ago. And then I, you know, just have to tell myself it could not be, otherwise I would not forgive myself. That, that case has never been solved. Well, going uh, lastly on Bundy, uh, considering how it's shaped your career and you as just a lawyer in general, um, if, if you could go back to the younger version of yourself and respond to Bundy, then uh, would you have still done it? And what have you, what would you have changed with the way you went about his representation? Uh, I'm not sure I'd change much. I mean, uh, I, I do go to law, I've taught at two different law schools. I go to law schools and talk people out of doing this job because it's really just too hard if you do it well. Um, so I'm not sure I'd change much. You know, representing Bundy helped my career in some ways, made me known, well-known nationally probably, but it's also hurt my career as an example. During the Me Too movement, which I support 100%, somebody, I, two people I know very well, I don't want to mention their names, but you all and your viewers would know their names, um, from New York and Washington, D.C., got in trouble with the Me Too movement. Um, one of them in particular I know would have called me and would have asked me to represent him. But then the newspapers would, would have said, you know, so-and-so hires Ted Bundy's lawyer. <laughs> so uh, I think in some ways, representing and being known as Ted Bundy's lawyer has actually hurt my career. You certainly have represented way more people than uh, Bundy. For example, uh, Colton Harris Moore, who was charged with the theft of hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of property and spanned multiple countries. Uh, he was ultimately sentenced to around seven years and as of 2016, I believe, released on parole. Uh, you've cited that case as one of the proudest achievements in your career. So what about Moore's case and his personal circumstances uh, gravitated uh, you so much toward him 
And what made you feel so strong about more personally? First of all, you could be his twin brother. I'm not sure how tall you are, but um, Colton was uh, a feral child. I thought that should be the name of books written about him, by the way. Uh, a feral child. I mean, he was basically raised in the woods, raised himself. The first crime he ever committed was breaking into a neighbor's cabin to, buy, to get food because his mother was using uh, food stands for cigarettes and beer. Um, so he was a very sympathetic character. I followed his saga before I was his lawyer. Uh, he had like 50,000 followers on Facebook, I think. Um, and of course, being anti-authoritarian, which I am, the fact that he kept making fools out of the police and authorities was something I was impressed with. Um, he's a very interesting guy. He's really smart. Um, uh, he's able to focus on, I mean, he flew in the airplane before he'd ever been in an airplane and taught him how. And he had, the last plane he took was a high altitude airplane that requires a hundred hours of service, excuse me, training in order to fly it. And he flew it from the Midwest to the Bahamas. Um, so that what he did, and there's so many great stories. They, they are going to be making a movie of him soon, which will be fascinating and they won't have to make anything up because it's just fascinating. He is now, by the way, living on the East Coast and going to college. So did you see, especially considering the anti-authoritarian aspects you just mentioned, is it fair to say that you saw some of yourself in more? Probably the rebellious nature. Yeah, and I was, you know, Colton was pretty pig-headed, so was I. So, but I think I was probably one of the only male role models he's ever had. Uh, I'm not sure it's good for him or not, but he didn't have no relationship with his father or any men and at all. Well, I also want to move on to, I now want to move on to, to your representation of Staff Sergeant Bells. Uh, uh, Robert Bells was charged with leaving his army base and murdering 16 Afghani citizens, nine, nine of whom were children. Uh, Bell's family reached out to you, per, presumably from your, your representation in the Moore's case. Uh, why did you take up that one? Well, I, you know, I'm against the death penalty, and uh, uh, Secretary, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, who was normally a rational person, who my father actually knew, um, actually made public statements calling for the death penalty for Sergeant Bales. And so the, the Army was very serious about trying to pursue the uh, death penalty, which is, by the way, firing squad in the military. Uh, and his family did meet with me. Uh, they did provide me with some money. Uh, I did fly to Afghanistan and spent um, 12 days in one of the worst places you could be in Afghanistan, a forward operating base during a preliminary hearing. Uh, I was wearing 50 pounds of body armor. I was 64 years old. Uh, there were rocket attacks. Um, it was really an interesting experience, to say the least. I became um, very much impressed with the enlisted men and women, uh, which I hadn't been before, uh, and wasn't too hot about the officers and they weren't too hot about me either. But I, I came away really with a great deal of respect for the enlisted men and women. And Robert Bales was just a casualty of our war, basically. I mean, it was his fourth deployment. He had a concussive head injury, he had PTSD. He seen his best friend's leg blown off three days before this incident. Uh, we were trying to blame him and call him a rogue soldier rather than focus on whether the war was appropriate or not. He got medals and commendations in Iraq for saving civilians. So what, what this happened, the army decided he was a rogue soldier, which he wasn't. He was a mentally ill soldier. Which in the book you mentioned, 
you, you talk about the change of tide that the army had with Bell's, uh, some of his, his um, uh, uh, other, uh, some of the other sergeants, he came up to you privately, right? And said uh, uh, that he, that, that it was unfortunate that the army was making him out to be something that they hadn't previously done. I couldn't hear that question. There's a fire engine outside my uh, oh, window. And then uh, in, in the middle of three hospitals, so. Oh, Go ahead. Uh, so you, you talk in the book about the change of tide the army had towards uh, uh, describing Bells. Prior to the incident, as you mentioned, uh, he was a celebrated uh, sergeant. Uh, but you talk about some of the people who went up to you privately and, and, and explained to you uh, that uh, uh, it was unfortunate to see the, this change of tide. Yes. Well, that was not enlisted, man. That was a lieutenant colonel um, who was one of the officers I really came to like a lot. And uh, he found me. And the only thing to do on a forward operating base <clears throat> is to just hide from snipers and rockets. But there's a platform where you can smoke and they usually have Cuban cigars. And I don't smoke cigars, but I had nothing else to do. So I was sitting out there smoking a cigar and this lieutenant colonel came up to me, taking his name tag off and told me that Bill's one of the best lawyers he ever had. And this war was going nowhere. And you've seen too many soldiers do bad things and have bad things happen to them. He was about to retire and he was happy that I was helping Sergeant Bale. And so in the book and uh, in other interviews, you described this case as your chance to actually put the war on trial. So I'm curious, did you ever have any sort of defense kind of lined up for a military related case? Uh, had it ever worked your, the way up to you prior to Bell's family actually reaching out? Well, no, we, we had a whole plan. If, the, if they were going to continue with the death penalty, we had a whole plan. We had some of the nationally known best psychiatrists in the United States and other experts working for us um, if they had not abandoned them. Once they abandoned the death penalty, which I credit our work with, um, so, um, uh, you know, once they abandoned the death penalty, we tried to get him a life with parole, but at the trial, we were not successful. He got life without parole. We were hoping the last president was going to commute, commute his sentence um, or pardon him. And there's still some hope that the president, president might, might. As mentioned in the introduction, you're known for your zealous advocacy of your clients. And so coming from Texas, I'm curious, uh, your thoughts, were you ever impacted by Joe Jamel's style? Did you ever get to meet him? Who? Joe Jamel. No, I know who that is. I haven't met him. Of course, Racehorse Haynes was from Texas. And right. um, there are a number of good defense lawyers in Texas. I was on some panels with them. Um, within the last couple of years in New York City, their Oxygen Network uh, did a, uh, a series of shows called In Defense Of, which was actually a really good series. And um, it featured three or four of us defense lawyers and why we are defense lawyers. I would uh, counsel you to take a look at that. It's on Oxygen Network and your uh, viewers also. It's called In Defense Of. Uh, I did speak with Racehorse Haynes a few times. Um, I work with Jerry Spence, um, who's a fairly famous lawyer. Um, so the real inspiration I got was from the lawyers I met in Chicago when I was in graduate school. See, I got a graduate degree after law school, which most lawyers don't. So I got a master's degree in law at Northwestern as a Ford Foundation fellow. And that program uh, basically put me in the office with the three best criminal defense lawyers in Chicago in 1971 and 72 and 73, and those three lawyers are the ones that really influenced me the most. Two of them became federal judges. Well, let me end uh, with this. Uh, you mentioned that this is your path. So I'm curious, 
uh, as Seattle Times article uh, from 2012 mentioned, you uh, quoted you on the Bell's case, quote, when I'm done with this case, I'm done. Uh, it seems that that's not the case. So what keeps you going? And do you enjoy this, the work you do as much as you always have? Um, I'm not sure enjoy is a good word for any of the work I've done. Um, I, do I think it's my obligation and my path? Yes. Do I still feel that way? Yes. In the last three or four years, I've represented some poor young black men for free and uh, who were wrongfully prosecuted and was successful in representing them in one way or another. Um, I don't think my work is quite done. I would probably will, I just took some very serious cases in the last two months, but um, I'll probably retire and teach or write another book in a year from now, August. Uh, now it's August, 2021. Well, thank you so much, John Henry Brown, for joining me on a life in. How do you live in Texas so long and not have an accent? Uh, luck, I guess. Luck or uh, uh, it's either mis misfortune or fortune, one of the two. <laughs> but do you have a cowboy hat? I, I do have a cowboy hat. I bet you do, I bet you do. I do too. As of recently though, as of recently. I do too, but you know, I'm from New Mexico and we're supposed to hate Texas. So anyway, <laughs> all right, take care. Well, there you have it. I'm Russell, this is a life in, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.